podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. And in the words of the King, when Liz Truss came to Buckingham Palace for one of her visits in her brief tenure as Prime Minister, back again, dear oh dear. <laughs> That's what he said to her, back again, dear oh dear. Here we are. It only seems like a few days since the last podcast. But in the meantime, there's been an exciting development. And we'll get to all the big issues later, including the German Masters, which is underway. But I've had a dream. Now, the dread words when people tell you that. Oh, no, I've got to hear all about it. But this is the thing, OK? I dreamt the, who's going to be in the world final and the overnight scoreline after day one. But the key thing is, you might say, well, OK, who cares? I had two separate dreams and it was the same two players and the same scoreline. Now, other podcasts, they do their best. We acknowledge that. They don't bring you prophecies. This is a prophecy. And the I should, in a way, I feel like leaving... The, the names of the players and indeed the scoreline until the end of the podcast is a reason to keep listening. But a lot of people will say we don't care that much, just tell us. So I will do. So I, and I had this dream in two separate occasions. In fact, they were consecutive nights, which is a bit odd anyway. Um, but the dream was that the world final is this year's final, for reasons I'll explain, is between John Higgins and Sean Murphy, OK? And it's very specific. Sean Murphy was 7-3 up, but John Higgins ended day one at 9-8. Now, I didn't, uh, I don't know who wins, because I woke up both times. <clears throat> but I know that it was this year, because I'm commentating in the dream, and um, I'm thinking about how I might wrap it up at the end. And I actually say, in Murphy's case, I'm thinking, well, it's 19 years since he won it. So that that means it is the 2024 World Championship. So what we're saying is, John Higgins, at the end of day one <laughs> of this year's final... He's going to be leading 9-8 against Sean Murphy. I'm not saying, obviously, rush out to the bookies. You can do, but don't blame me if it doesn't come off. But that sounds, the fact that I had it twice, that sounds, you know, well, like it's going to happen, frankly. We, we don't have the draw yet. They may play each other, you know, in round two for all I know. But anyway, that's what that was the dream, and I thought I'd bring that to you. If that happens, then uh, this podcast, well, it's going to acquire almost religious following. Um, Anyway, so that <laughs> that was the dream. Now, of course, the German Masters is underway, um, going very nicely. And uh, right from the off, the crowds came out in force. And everything that was said about them is, is true. Um, very respectful crowds, very uh, appreciative of all the players, and indeed just the game itself. We've had an email here, actually, uh, from Cav in Ipswich, who writes... I'm a big snooker fan, both playing and watching, and I discovered your podcast about a year ago. I'm patiently going through the back issues, or sorry, back series, whilst keeping up with the latest episodes. And many times I've thought about writing him, but never quite found the time until now. In the end, your latest podcast on the preview of the German Masters and wanted to hear about fans' experiences was the last straw that prompted me to finally send this email. I've been to many snooker matches over the years. This includes the World Championship and the Crucible, the Masters at Alexandra Palace. Both of them are unique and have great atmospheres. However, I do agree that the German Masters at the Tempodrome is a special event. A friend and I first went to Berlin in 2020 for the semi-final between Judd Trump and Graham Dot. We fondly remember the rapturous reception Dot received as he entered the arena. He was electric, with the enthusiastic capacity crowd on their feet applauding. Dot strode in, one hand in the air, and circled 360 degrees to salute the whole arena. It really set the scene for a great occasion. Trump won the match, but I came away a dot fan. I also went to the German Masters last year, 2023, for the semi-final between Robert Milkins and Ali Carter. Again, another great atmosphere and close match. The German fans really make the event, and without wishing to sound condescending, their innocent, joyous love for snooker is endearing. I was also at the Crucible this year and noticed quite a few people came from Germany to watch the World Championship, which was nice. 
I wanted to finish by saying it's fantastic to hear so many diverse and interesting people engaging with your podcast, and it is especially lovely to hear about new people getting into the sport from around the world. From the back series, I recall the ladies who are new to snooker from Italy and Hungary, and also the young man from India, who in 2020 wrote so passionately about Stephen Hendry, the commentator. Those three and many others have been fascinating to hear about. Well, isn't that great? That's from uh, Cav in Ipswich. Thank you for that. And uh, yes, I mean, you're, you're right about the, the audience. Again, without being condescending, it's just nice to see people who are kind of there for the right reasons. It doesn't look like anyone's been dragged along, you know, at sitting there in sufferance. They're not on their phones all the time. They're actually watching the snooker and they'll watch anyone play. They love the game. Obviously, Lucas Kleckers on uh, Monday night, you know, didn't perform. I think he was nervous. He's playing Judd Trump as well, which is not an easy task, but he did have chances. I mean, Trump started and ended, bookended, as we always say, with century breaks. But um, Kleck has had chances, and he, he did actually put a tweet up earlier saying, you know, he, he, what a shame it was that he kind of couldn't take them. But I'm, but I'm sure he overall enjoyed the experience of actually... Of course, the big uh, the big issue we've been discussing, some would say exposing on the podcast, has been the 1983 match between Bill Werbeneck and David Taylor. The case of A, David Taylor sitting not by Bill Werbeneck, but in another area, uh, which we were told was due to his aversion to smoking. Bill Werbeck was a smoker. But also the small table, which still we haven't quite got to the bottom of, that he's placed at the bulk end, uh, not sort of referenced it by anybody. But uh, Dave Daly, our, our dear friend who, uh, of course, is at the Ox Billiards Club in Seattle, and uh, he uh, comes over to the World Championship every year. He, he's emailed from Seattle, and this is what he says about this. And this this is good information. This is This may, this may settle things. Dave says, back to the subject of the 1983 match between David Taylor and Bill Werbeneck, where Taylor had moved his chair to the bottom black end of the table. During last week's podcast, you were talking about theories as to why he did this. I happen to know Darren Taylor, who's David Taylor's son. Darren is now living in Arizona. Last year, I refereed the US Nationals final, which Darren won. So anyway, after listening to your podcast, I reached out and asked him. And yes, the reason was indeed about smoking. David Taylor absolutely hated it, so he did move his chair because of it. Hopefully that puts the issue to rest. Well, it does, uh, Dave, although the, the table, of course, is still, you know, that's still... Uh, maybe that was another dream. Maybe that never happened. Anyway, uh, Dave continues. Darren also mentioned that uh, Taylor, this is his father, David Taylor, also didn't like smoking because he felt that players who smoked during matches had a bit of an unfair advantage as those players were able to relax easier as a result of smoking. It's an interesting thought. Smoking isn't considered an illegal substance used to improve performance. It's banned now, more because it's considered antisocial and second-hand smoker health risk. But the substance advantage is an interesting topic of discussion. I suppose the same was true about drinking beer back in the day. It potentially provided players with an unfair relaxation advantage. But with beer, the advantages are questionable, as after a certain amount of beer, there are potentially negative effects to your fine motor skills and focus. Not that this affected Bill Werbeneck, as he was known to be able uh, to down many pints and still see straight. In any case, while I do nostalgically miss some things about those early days of snooker, smoking and drinking during the games is not one of them. Hope all is well, and see you in Sheffield in April. And he, I hope, hopefully, Dave, and he's actually put a, put a picture up of himself and Darren Taylor, which which only I can see. I, I understand that, but you can see the resemblance certainly. Uh, nobody's smoking in the picture. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, whether tobacco. I mean, those sort of. Are they stimulants? Are they, do they help you relax? The, you know, maybe one drink before you play, you could argue, could take away a few inhibitions. I don't know. But, um, and it's not illegal actually to have a drink before you go out and play as long as you don't take it out there with you. But, um, I don't think that happens now. I don't think players, players are more professional in general. The question is, who was the last player 
to drink beer in the crucible. Uh, Stefan Masrosis, I think, one year did against Peter Ebden. Um, but uh, it's not. It's been quite a while since that happened. Uh, and of course, smoking. I mean, it's amazing to think you look back now. Some of the old footage, cutaways of people smoking. Of course, the, the sponsors, Embassy, were and the other the tobacco sponsors were delighted because uh, they wouldn't always smoke their brand, but they would have the the cigarette packets would have to be in the, in the sponsors, uh, you know, the sponsors' own. But in the old days, I mean, the, the, the Crucible set it kind of looked like an ashtray, really, when you look at it. Maybe that was the idea. <laughs> um, times have changed. Now, Christine has written in on, on a hot-button topic. Uh, she said, I'm interested in your thoughts on the role of the snooker table in The Traitors. I noticed on episode two, contestants playing planning another game of billiards. You may not have watched it. Maybe I should be writing to Richard Osman on the rest of his entertainment about this. Thanks for mentioning this podcast a few weeks ago, as I probably wouldn't have started listening to it without you drawing it to my attention. Uh, yes, I, I, I'll, I'll break it to you, Christine. I think I'm the only person in Britain who hasn't seen this programme. I've heard all about it. Everyone says it's great, the traitors, on the BBC. But there just seem to be a lot of episodes. Um, I mean, literally, you know, who has time, really, for all that? Uh, you have, I think you have to be with it from the start, and I wasn't... I've heard it's very good, and indeed the podcast with Richard Osman and Marina Hyde, they were discussing it this week, but uh, I haven't seen it, so I can't really, well, I literally can't add anything to it. <laughs> and this is what people come to the podcast for, I can't add anything to it. But what I can do is continue and read out a couple more emails. Uh, Jonas, in, uh, I was going to say in Sweden, but it doesn't actually say that. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that, Jonas. You may be in Sweden, you may not, but uh, anyway. Um... On this week's episode, you read a letter from someone about sports washing, and they said that since it's a WST event in Saudi Arabia, it's not sports washing. I'd say the complete opposite. A rouge invitational or exhibition event would not be classified as sports washing in my book. However, in the sports governing body of World, World Federation, as with FIFA and the Qatar World Cup, or FIA with Formula One, chooses to ignore the critique about having an event in such a country, I'd say there's more, that's more sports washing. But that's my, just my opinion on the matter. Thank you, Jonas. Um, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, there's various things here. I, th I think the tournament in Saudi Arabia, I suspect whatever people's opinion is now, it'll be their opinion in six months. I don't think people are going to change their mind on this. There's a range of opinions, and that's all fine and good. Um, this term sports washing, I think, needs a bit of scrutiny. It's sort of been accepted. I mean, it's, it's, it's a new word, really, new term. I think there is a difference between a country such as Saudi Arabia effectively buying the golf tour or buying Newcastle United and... A sporting event being staged there. We're going to Saudi Arabia just as we've been to Germany, just as we've been to China. What I will say is this, okay, within the sport, the attitude towards it is mainly positive. I haven't had anybody, not one person, say to me, we shouldn't be going there. I think people are pragmatic. They understand that, you know, snooker's following in a long list of sports that are going to this country. And they're excited, frankly, about what it could mean, the investment, the opening up of a new market. Um, that's people with on the circuit, players, officials, people who work behind the scenes, mostly from the ones I've spoken to, and it's obviously not everybody, but the ones I've spoken to, they understand why it's happening and they're mainly positive about it. Outside of that, people looking from the outside in, I'm sure there'll be many people who have different views. There'll be a range of views. As I say, I don't think people are going to change their mind necessarily, um, but it's happening, and that's a fact. It's happening uh, in a few weeks' time. From your email address, Jonas, I think you are in Sweden. But um, anyway, if you're not, I apologise. <laughs> um, Richard Colley, he says, I'm really enjoying the new World Snooker Tour website and the new scoring system is like 
the rest of it, in general, most excellent. I don't want to come across as moaning, and I accept the website is still bedding in. It may be me, but I don't think it is. What appears to be missing is the two documents. The document of match numbers and dates, which you then had to match against the second document of the draw sheet for each tournament. At the bottom of the match sheet was the frames per round. While the draw sheet and order play is now presented well, there appears to be no option to download this and the frames per round, and indeed, intended frames per session appear to be missing. As a snooker fan, maybe I should know all this from memory, and I'm sure fans like the great Kelly Barker does. However, sadly, I don't. I'm sorry I don't want to sound like I'm moaning, but can you pass this on to the powers that be, please? It would be great if this was presented in one easy-to-understand document and no cross-referencing between the two were needed. Thank you, Richard. I don't think that's moaning. You're bringing um, an issue to light, and you're entitled to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, the website now, the, the new World Snooker website, it's been there nearly a month now. Um, I think, well, I'm not going to say that there's a sort of general view because there's lots of different views in my opinion which is all i can give i think it's it's an upgrade certainly it looks better i think there are a few issues i mean the match center is good i think really nicely displayed the scores um nice and easy to follow um i know there were a couple <coughs> excuse me in, in the matches in the qualifying where it did seem to lag behind a bit in terms of the frame scores but overall it seems to work well um, information though, you're right, information is what you should go to that website for. If you listen to the Christmas special, and who didn't, it was only three hours, um, we mentioned the West Wing. Now Aaron Sorkin, who wrote the West Wing, he wrote another series called The Newsroom. Not as well received, I enjoyed it, but, uh, anyway, the first episode, it's set in a TV newsroom, and the first episode, the, the main character is the, the, the anchor man of the, of the TV news program, and he's doing a talk at, the, at a college, I believe, and he's asked a question, is America the greatest country in the world? And his answer is no, but it could be. And if you were going to ask the question, is the World Snooker Tour website the best snooker website in the world? The answer is probably no, but it could be. And it could be because they've got great resources. Obviously, they're the, the body that runs the professional circuit. They've got money behind them, investment. But there are things that still myself and a lot of other people will go to, for example, QTracker, snooker.org, these great statistical and information sites for... One of them is prize money. I couldn't find the prize money anywhere on the World Snooker website for the German Masters or the World Open. I literally typed in prize money into the search bar and didn't get a single uh, reply uh, response. So I don't know if it's there or not. I gave up looking. Um, frame format, again, it, it is there for the German Masters. You have to search for it. Um, so I think these things could be maybe a bit more prominently displayed. But they are, you're right when you say it's still bedding in, you know, it's only a few weeks and hopefully any issues will be ironed out. I suppose that should open it up to listeners, um, snooker fans. What do you think of the World Snooker Tour website? What's good about it? What's not so good about it? What can be improved? Because if World Snooker are listening, then they may well take that on board. So do let us know, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com with views on the website, how you feel it could be improved. Um, what you think is better about it, maybe what's worse about it. Um, let us know. One thing I would like to see is restored is on the scoring part of it, the match centre, there used to be a list of centuries from the event. That was really useful, where now you have to go into each individual match to log the centuries. And if you're trying to follow the high break, particularly the multi-table tournament, obviously if someone's made a high break on table six and it's not, there's no list of centuries, you might miss that. And actually, seriously, if you're commentating, you know, you, you're trying to focus on uh, is he on for the high break or not, it's a bit fiddly to have to go into every match and look at every score. So that could be something, if that could be resolved, that would be useful, I think. <coughs> now, Brian McGovern, I've just been listening to the current podcast and you mentioned Chris Small. I was wondering what happened to Dean O'Kane. 
remember a question came up on Nick and Phil's podcast asking if there was an overseas commentator at the Crucible, and it was Dean. Do you know what happened to him? Love the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Uh, well, of course, Eddie Charlton commentated as well for the BBC. He was uh, very much uh, well overseas, non-British, we mean, of course. Dean came for a while, was a very recognisable player. Got to 18 in the world. Of course, New Zealand, New Zealand's best ever player. And he's in the Crucible Almanac, one of the <laughs> most extraordinary parts of it. Uh, the record for m- most non-consecutive appearances at the, <laughs> the Crucible. I think it was six, but anyway... Um, yeah, and, and he did. He did sort of in the early two thousands. He, he sort of fell off the circuit. Came back briefly. As far as I'm aware, he is working as as a real estate manager. So he's. Uh, I, I mean, I say that I went on LinkedIn to, to find him, and uh, he says Dean works in the extremely competitive real estate sector of high end apartments and penthouse sales in Auckland City. So seems like he's uh, doing well for himself. And I'm, I always admire a player who can go and start a new career, just start something completely different. Um, obviously, a lot of players, and you understand why they stay in the game, but he's gone and made a success, it would seem, of something completely different to Snook. I'm sure, you know, he still misses the circuit, but he's 60 years of age now. He's gone into something different, and, uh, yeah, that seems to be what he's doing. He's selling real estate, and good luck to him. He was, a, I thought, a very sort of elegant player, very classy sort of player. Beat Cliff Thorburn, didn't he, at the Crucible in the 80s, and that kind of put him on the map a bit. And, of course... Uh, Played in that uh, the rest of the world in the world te- in the world team cup, uh, they got to the final against England. Rest of the world is a bit patronising, really, isn't it? It's just patching together different countries. But he represented New Zealand. Silvina Francesco represented South Africa and Tony Drago Malta, and they took England, which was the the top three players in the world at the time: Steve Davis, Jimmy White, and Neil Folds, to a respot in the in the final frame. Nine eight. Steve, <laughs> needless to say, won that for England, but. Uh, Anyway, that's that's Dino Kane. Any uh, any other sightings of him, we'll, we'll take. <clears throat> Scott Fife, thanks for the fine start of the year with the podcast. Uh, looking at today's scores on the World Snooker website, on the first day of the Bet Victor German Masters, I noticed that despite both withdrawing before Berlin, Hossein Vafai is shown as losing 5-0 to Elliot Slesser, and Martin Gould gets the same scoreline for his match with John Higgins. Given you compile the stats for head-to-heads between players, do you count these towards when no match was played? And is there a reason they're not recorded as walkovers rather than 5-0? Uh, well, they should be walkovers, Scott. Thanks for the question. I don't count them, no, because the match hasn't been played. Um, there's no match been played there. Um, it's a walkover. Um, now, it may be that it's just a sort of system thing, you know, to, to, to sort of um, be recorded properly in the system. It has to be put through as a result. But the fact is that the match has not been played, and therefore... You know, you can't count it as a head-to-head. But it, it, this does have knock-on effects, actually, which maybe have not been thought through. Because Ronnie O'Sullivan this season, OK, has lost three matches. That's a fact, OK? He's played 34 matches and he's won 31. If you go on the World Snooker website, it says he's played 36 and won 31. And the reason for that is a couple of matches um, where he's withdrawn at the last minute. For example, Liam Graham at the Scottish Open has gone through as a win for Liam Graham. And therefore, it's gone as a match that Ronnie played. So it says his win percentage is 86%, but it will actually be higher than that by virtue of the fact that he's only, I mean, it's just a fact that he's only lost three matches. Um, so I, I don't think it should be put through as 5 0. The Q tracker um, have him at 91% uh, success. Um, so, yeah, uh, to answer your question, they're not, they should not be considered 5 0 wins because the match wasn't played. If, for example, um, we had a match the other night, uh, Alfie Davis 
against Marco Fu. Now, Marco sadly had to pull out with double vision. That match had started, so that counts as, well, it'll count as 5-1. It was technically 3-1, player retired ill, but it'll go through as 5-1. That's fair enough, I think. Um, but if the match, if not a ball has been struck, I don't see how the match could, could be counted, basically. And it, well, it wouldn't be by me. <coughs> now, we move on. To, I think this is the last email. Uh, and it's from Paul. Who, now this, <laughs> this is a correction on last week. Quite a, quite a serious one. He said, just listen to the latest episode. Thanks for including my note about the Masters. Given your fondness for humour on the podcast, I thought you may like to know that I spat my tea this morning. When you suggested, and apologies for this sentence, but I'm just reading it out. When you suggested, my ass was mumbling in the alley pally seating. I'm pleased to clarify that it was perfectly silent throughout the match. Numbing was the word I wrote. Those chairs were the source of discomfort, not flatulence. But thanks for making me laugh out loud. Well, apologies for that, uh, Paul, but um, I'm glad you clarified it. He says, while I'm on, here's that nice question I vaguely promised. I have accidentally ended up with a small collection of vintage snooker cues, one of them formerly owned by Mark Wildman. Sent me down a rabbit hole looking at the cues used by players back in the day. As you say, some people just waste their lives. Anyway, I read somewhere that Dennis Taylor's World Championship winning stick was an old two-piece he'd plucked from Nigel Mansell's snooker room. I love the idea that this is true, apart from Dennis being aided indirectly by the world champion of a completely different sport. Stories of massive wins with cheaper bits of wood are oddly poetic. Ken Doherty and Stephen Hendry spring to mind here. It got me thinking, many in the amateur game are constantly tinkering with cues, tip hardness, shape and size, etc., I know Sean Murphy's also famously suggested more can be gained for varying his playing kit, but often wonder how much of all this is in the mind. If you can win majors with machine-spliced club cues, why all the fuss? Steve Davis once said he burned the end of his cue with a lighter to train him to play with the same bridge distance, and that even the slightest adjustment to cue length threw him, threw him off. Hendry, of course, famously seemed to lose his game shortly after his career-long cue was damaged. So maybe it's just a case of getting used to one thing and sticking with it. Or is the modern game so much more precise that it demands something expensively handmade, like a John Paris? Cues seem rarely discussed by media folks, say, save for the odd struggle with an expiring tip. Is there any interesting insight here on the relationship between players' performance and timber over the years, or does this level of nervousness take us off the map? Well, yeah, Paul, I think you're you're in uh, uh, good company here, aren't you? You're in you're amongst friends. Um, I think cues do get discussed quite a lot. I think the thing about a cue is I think players can sometimes be looking in the wrong place. They're, sometimes their game, they're, they're struggling with their game, and they sort of think, oh, it must be the equipment. And in some sports, you can understand that. But I think quite often in snooker, you see players... I mean, John Higgins is one. Now, John's had a great career, obviously. But they start to sort of develop a bit of a complex about, OK, the cue's not quite right. I need to take a bit off. I need to have a bit put on. I need to do this. I need to do that. And sometimes it's nothing to do with the cue, I think. Now, obviously, you want to be comfortable with the queue. But, I mean, Mark Allen, he won the champion Champions a few years ago, beating pretty much everyone you, you'd want to beat in a tournament to win it. I think he beat Trump, O'Sullivan and Robertson. <laughs> and then he changed his queue after that tournament. And to, to the layman, to us sort of looking in from the outside, you can't really understand why, but obviously there was a good reason he wasn't quite happy with it. Other people keep their queues as, as long as they can. Alain Robidoux was the one. I mean, he, he had a, a, a queue that he was very, very happy with. And I think people know this story, but I might, might as well roll it out again. He had his best ever season. He got to the final of the German Open. He got to the semi-finals of the World Championship. He got to number nine in the world rankings at the end of that season. And he sent the queue off. He needed a minor repair done to it. Sent it off to the quite an elderly queue maker who'd, who'd made it originally. And Alain was sponsored by 
uh, a Q company or, or some uh, company in the trade anyway. And he had a small logo fitted on the Q. And the Q maker, who was something of a traditionalist, I think it's fair to say, was so appalled by this logo that he smashed the Q up. Just smashed it up. And it was, you know, irreparable. And Elaine, firstly, was shocked by this. But secondly, he was so affected psychologically that his form fell off a cliff. He didn't win a match the next season. His career was never the same. He fell down the rankings very soon after that, a few years. He was off the tour. That was his career done. So clearly, in his case, the the Q and the psychological hold that Q had on him was significant. Someone like Ronnie O'Sullivan, I mean, this happened. He, it was one year before the Masters. He smashed his Q up. He, he, he himself did it. Got a new Q from John Paris, won the Masters. But, but Ronnie is Ronnie. You can't really, you know, that's not the norm. Uh, some players sort of keep searching for what they think is the perfect Q, um, and maybe that such a thing doesn't exist. Other players just seem happy to keep the same one. Sean Murphy's been... This experiment, we've not heard much about it recently, this 3Q thing. Anthony McGill with the graphite Q, is, is that going to last? I don't know. His results don't seem to really be, be ticking along too well, really. Um, but it's the one thing every snooker player needs, isn't it? The one thing every player needs is a Q. So it is clearly, for players, a very um, you know important thing. Now, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. Not even amateur. But there is something about the, the Q, particularly for men, you know, uh, if you can sort of think of the shape of it. If you delve deep into it, there'd be all sorts you could read into it. We're not going to do that here. Um, but it, there is something about... <laughs> about the nature of that and and the people who play snooker, I think. But anyway, um, I'm not sure that answers your question, Paul, but thanks for the question anyway. It's been a short episode this week and somewhat argue pointless. But anyway, we've got through the uh, the emails and uh, I've imparted my prophecy about the world final. So we'll see if that pans out or not. Um, do let us know if you've, if you've uh, predicted any match results in dreams. Um yeah, let us know. Or indeed, if you've if you've dreamt any any scores upcoming, we'll keep. I was going to say we'll keep track of it, but obviously I won't do that. That would be lunacy. Um, <laughs> so anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week, I would imagine. And um, do keep the emails coming in. Snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. I believe Phil Yates is on the Framed podcast next week with Shabnam. So uh, Phil will be on that. Worth listening to, I'm sure. Um, or certainly, he's re- I know he's recorded it, so it'll be, it'll be upcoming. Um, so look out for that. In the meantime, we're members of the Sports Social Network. They have lots of other podcasts as well. And the figures are up. This is the other thing. I was looking at the figures, and year on year we're up. <laughs> Whatever that means. Well, there's more people listening. I don't know why. But uh, there does seem to be, I think we've seen it in lots of different ways, an uptick, an, up, an uplift in the general interest in the game, which is great, of course. If you're a new listener... Uh, welcome. If you're an old listener, thanks for sticking around. And that's it. We'll be back, as I say, next week. But as we always say, here on the podcast, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.